Lord Jesus, as we open your, we have opened your word written, open our hearts to you, the living word, by the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, the 500-year-old paintings of Peter Bruegel frequently have a Where's Wally quality to them. They are so rich in detail that it's often necessary to hunt deep into the picture in order to find the principal characters that are depicted. And the painting on the slide is called The Preaching of John the Baptist. But we have to really zoom in to see the preaching figure dressed in brown. And uh, actually, if you're interested in looking further at this picture, I have a book at the, on the table at the back, just next to the study sheets about this passage. You can go deeper into the picture, and with the study sheets, you can go deeper into the passage this week. So John the Baptist is dressed in brown. We also need to have a sense of what we're actually looking for, uh, just in the same way as we'd be looking for a horizontal striped shirt and a red beanie if we were on the hunt for Wally. To the left of John the Baptist, or his left, but to our right, as we look at the picture, Bruegel has placed Jesus Christ, standing with his arms crossed and dressed in teal, listening to John's preaching. To recognize him in the picture, we need to know something about how he has been portrayed in the history of art. But our Bible reading this morning shows us that the defining features of Jesus Christ run much deeper than the possession of a beard and a cloak. And we'll also find that the defining features of Jesus Christ matter intensely to us today. When we read the account of the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 17 through, uh, sorry, verses 13 through to 17, asking the questions, what is he like? We will find two ways of answering that question both of which turn out to be of vital importance to us today. The first way of answering the question is this. In being baptized, Jesus shows us that he is one with us. And to try to explain this, I'm going to tell you a story that may sound a bit like a fairy tale of the kind told by the famous storyteller Hans Christian Andersen, though in fact it was written by someone else who lived at around the same time and in the same country as Hans Christian Andersen by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. I may be pronouncing his name wrong, but then I can't pronounce half the words in the song, There's No One Like Jesus. <laughs> anyway, the story goes like this. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden from a peasant family. Let everyone rejoice. For love is overjoyed when it unites equals, but it is triumphant when it makes equal that which was unequal. Let the king's love reign. But then there arose a sadness in the king's soul. He spoke to no one about his sadness. Had he done so, everyone would doubtless have said, Your Majesty, you are doing the girl a generous favor for which she could never thank you enough. And that would have caused the king even more sorrow. Would the maiden ever be happy? Would she be able to forget what the king wished to forget? Namely, that he was the king 
and that she was a former lowly maiden. If the memory of her former state awoke within her and stole her thoughts away from the king, or if this memory at times crossed her soul like death, crossing over a grave, where then would the glory of love, their love be? She would have been happier had she remained in obscurity and married one of her own kind. And even if the maiden were content, the king would never be satisfied simply because he loved her. He would much rather lose her than be her benefactor. If equality cannot be established, love becomes unhappy and incomplete. This story is, of course, a parable concerning the relationship of, between Jesus Christ and his disciple. And Kierkegaard considers options for how that relationship could be put on a healthy footing. One way could be by the elevation of the, the disciple, he writes. God could lift the disciple up to his own exultant state, and this could well divert the disciple with an everlasting joy. But God, the unselfish king, would find no satisfaction in this. He knows that the disciple, like the maiden, would be gravely deceived, bewitched by a simple change of costume. Kierkegaard then considers the option of unity being brought about by God directly appearing to the, to the disciple and receiving his or her unhindered worship. That would surely make the disciple forget about himself or herself, much in the way the king could have appeared in all his glory to the humble maiden, making her forget herself in worshipping adoration. This too might have satisfied the maiden, but not the king, who desires not his own exaltation, but hers. Nor would she understand him, and this would make the king's sorrow even worse. Who can grasp the contradiction of this sorrow, asked Kierkegaard. The unity of love will have to be brought about in some other way, if not by elevation of ascent, then by a descent of the lowliest kind. God must become the equal of the lowliest. But the lowliest is one who serves others. God must therefore appear in the form of a servant. But this servant's form is not merely something he puts on, like a cloak. No, it is his true form. For that is the unfathomable nature of boundless love. That it desires to be equal with the beloved, not in jest, but in truth. In appearing in the flesh as a helpless baby, and in submitting to the baptism of John as an adult, Jesus Christ truly became one with us. That is the meaning behind the short conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus, as recorded by Matthew, the Gospel writer. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? The logic of his objection is something like this. You are the Messiah. Don't try to put yourself in the place of those who are being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You should remain a king in all your glory. To take on the role not only of a servant, but actually of a repentant sinner, 
well, that's appropriate for me, John the Baptist, and everyone I've baptized up till now. But for you, wouldn't it be a humiliating form of play acting? The answer Jesus gave to this was, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. This may have been a mysterious saying for John to hear, and in fact we are here at the edge of the great mystery of righteousness. But at the heart of this saying of Jesus was his determination to stoop so low precisely in order to raise sinners heavenward. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for our sins. And this is true only because he was willing to humble himself and put himself in our place so that our sins became his and his righteousness became ours. God made him who had no sin to be sin, the Apostle Paul writes, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Perhaps we're familiar with the idea that Jesus died and rose again for our sake. But it is also true that he lived the perfect life for us, that we have been unable to live for ourselves. And because he is one with us, he is able to bring righteousness to the nations. That identification is genuine. It is not play acting. And nowhere is it clearer than in the baptism of Jesus. For as long as Jesus retained all the privileges of his messiahship and divinity, he had no need of John's baptism of repentance. But in accepting baptism, he humbly descended to be one with us, with all of us who need and know we need the forgiveness of sins. Without his baptism and the radical identification with sinners it entailed, the death and resurrection of Jesus could be of no benefit to us. So it is his baptism that provides the vitally important insurance that we need, that not only is he like us, he is actually one with us. Jesus also transformed the meaning of baptism by being baptized. Never again could baptism be understood merely as a sign of the baptismal candidate's repentance. From then on, baptism was no longer primarily about the candidate and his or her repentance. It was now supremely about union with Jesus Christ, made possible by his radical identification with sinners. It's no longer all about us. Now that we see, it's all about him. In love, he has become the equal of the lowliest, not simply in appearance, but also in reality. He suffers all things. He endures all things. He is tried in all things. He hungers in the desert. He thirsts in his agonies. And he is forsaken in death. But all this began, in a manner of speaking, on the day he was baptized by John. And now in baptism, Christ claims us for his own. In the Book of Common Prayer, the baptism of Jesus is remembered in a prayer that says, 
by thy agony and bloody sweat, by thy cross and passion, by thy precious death and burial, by thy glorious resurrection and ascension, and by the coming of the Holy Spirit, good Lord, deliver or save us. But also, before that, the prayer says, by the mystery of thy holy incarnation, by thy holy nativity and circumcision, by thy baptism, fasting and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. It is the life of Jesus, as well as his death and resurrection, that saves us. We are saved on account of our union with him, a union which is itself mysterious, but nonetheless real, a union which is possible because of Jesus having become one with us. So that's the first way in which Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, answers the question, what is he like? And here is the second part of the answer. Immediately after being baptized, Jesus shows us that he is one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You may remember that the Bible verse, the opening verse we had today, came from the word of the Lord to the prophet Isaiah. This is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring righteousness to the nations. I said righteousness to the nations. Uh, At the opening verse it said justice, but in the thought world of the Old and New Testaments, those two concepts are fused together. Now in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Here we're at the edge of another great mystery, the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And what we see here is the closest possible identification of Jesus Christ with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the closest possible identification that is consistent with ongoing differentiation. If the Holy Spirit had not descended at Jesus on Jesus at his baptism, Jesus would not have been in a position to say, as he did say in John chapter 15, that when the Spirit of truth comes, whom I'll send you from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. And if the Father had not said, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, Jesus would not have been in a position to say, as he did say in John chapters 10 and 14, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. At the baptism of Jesus and at Pentecost, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit act in concert and in concord. They act as one because they are one. It's not just that Jesus is like the Father and the Spirit, rather he is at one with them. Now this is not just a matter of dry academic theology. It's of vital importance to us because it means that through Christ we have access to the Father by one Spirit, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. 
In other words, the outworking of the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity is that any authentic encounter or experience we may have of God is simultaneously through Christ, with the Father, and by the Spirit. Practically, what this means is that it is not possible to be in the Spirit without also being in the Son, or to have a valid relationship with God that is not mediated by Jesus, or to reach the Father by some other spiritual path than the one true and living way he has given us in Jesus. Because the three persons of the Trinity are one substance, one in will and in purpose, Christians may show tolerance, hospitality, humility and respect towards adherents of other world religions, certainly, but we cannot regard those religions as independent manifestations of the Spirit that can be set alongside God's self-manifestation in Christ on an equal footing. That would be to divide the unity of the persons of the Godhead. Likewise, it's not possible to be in the Son without also being in the Spirit, because it is through the Spirit that we come to believe the Gospel in the first place and to receive all that the Father has done for us in the Son. None of this is a possibility for us or an achievement of our own inherent spirituality. It's a gracious work of God within us. Because the three persons of the Trinity are one substance, one in will and in purpose, practically what this means for us is that the Son and the Spirit do not act, operate in silos to oversee different stages of the Christian life. It's not the case that first we receive salvation from sin, from Christ crucified, and then later, having fulfilled certain other conditions, go on to a further stage in which we're baptized in the Holy Spirit into the fullness of God's life and power. That too would be to divide the unity of the persons of the Godhead. On the contrary, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life is enjoyment of access to the Father through Christ by one Spirit. Because the three persons of the Trinity are one substance, one in will and in purpose, practically what this means for us is that the Holy Spirit will not be encountered via introspective inner journeys into ourselves. Once again, that would be to divide the unity of the persons. Instead, he'll be found by an outward journey beyond ourselves into Christ, the incarnate, crucified, and risen Lord of history, from whom the Spirit of God comes to us. Or rather, we will be found by him and led on this journey. So Matthew chapter 3 shows us what Jesus is like and why it matters. By his baptism, he has shown himself to be one with us. And he's shown that the true form of God is that of a servant. He has stooped so tenderly so he can lift our humanity to the heights of his throne in union with him. Having been baptized, Jesus is shown to be one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Because of that unity, we may be brought into the life of God the Father, not via one route out of many, 
possible routes, nor by a mystical inner journey, nor by a two-step second blessing process, but always, only, and forever, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in an act of sheer grace. We recognize Wally by his horizontal striped shirt and his red beanie. But what are the defining features of Jesus Christ? What is he like? He is like a king who loved a peasant girl, who humbled himself to become the equal of the lowliest, not in appearance, but in reality, and who in this way brought about the triumph of love. So let us pray. Father God, bring us and keep us within the mystery of your righteousness and your loving triune nature. As you have promised, bring your righteousness not only to us, but also to the nations. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.